You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good morning. I'm Joanna Coles, and I couldn't be more excited to have a conversation this morning with Tina Brown about her new book, The Palace Papers. It is already the talk of London. It's at the top of the bestseller list, and I'm sure it's the talk of Buckingham Palace. Uh, Tina, when the words go out across newsrooms in London that London Bridge is down, it signals the end of an extraordinary era for Queen Elizabeth II and the ascension of her son, who, let's face it, has the most extraordinary job of waiting for his mum to die so he can ascend to the throne. Um, does the royal family still matter when Charles becomes king? And why does it matter? Thank you, Joanna, and hi to everybody watching Washington Post Live. Um, the monarchy does still matter enormously, at any rate, in Britain. It is the preeminent focus of national identity, national pride, history, tradition. And really, I, I, I'm not even sure that the Brits know how to be British anymore when the Queen dies, because she has been for ever since anyone can remember. I mean, 70 years we're talking. The representation of these kind of stoic British ideals, even if the reality of Britain has changed enormously. She represents duty, service, um, you know, uh, absolute sort of commitment to the British ideal of keep calm and carry on. She's the personification of it. So when she goes, already there's a kind of low grade fever running through the country of what is going to happen when the Queen dies. And I think there's going to be the most massive and sort of seismic national reaction to her death. So what kind of a king do you think Prince Charles will be? Well, I'm more optimistic than many, actually, about Charles. Um, you know, the monarchy's gone through these kind of massive moments before. When Queen Victoria died, everybody said, oh, it's over, it's over. But then, you know, Edward VII, her son, reigned for nine years and he turned out to be a perfectly OK monarch and actually had some achievements and, and sort of changed the tempo and modernised a bit. Um, Charles, I think, will be a very good transitional monarch. And I'm not of, of the sort of the party that says uh, William should take over, not Charles, because I think you need that sort of bridge between the two eras. Charles is very accomplished statesman at this point. His particular passions for the environment, organic farming, his cares about uh, climate change happen to gel very well, finally, with the rest of the world and the British people. And he's married Camilla, who, uh, you know, was a pariah for so long. But now the Queen, at the beginning of the um, Jubilee sort of run up, has announced that Camilla will be Queen, known as Queen Concert, with her blessing, which was great. It took that controversy off the table. So I think he's going to have a decent run as long as he doesn't live to 102. <laughs> So, so let's let's talk about Camilla, because one of the things that's so fascinating about your book is you really go into depth about the women, the women, I mean, other than Queen Elizabeth, of course, who are the power behind the throne. And you talk a lot about, frankly, the awful time that Camilla had once her relationship with Prince Charles had been exposed. Talk a little bit about how she came back and what was it about her resilience that has managed to now warm her way into the British people's hearts again? Well, I mean, it's actually almost inconceivable how much abuse Camilla took. I mean, she was called hag, old bag, 
which, I mean, these were the kind of words that were used about Camilla for years. And when, of course, the dreaded Camilla Gate tapes leaked, the phone call between Charles and Camilla, where he referred, unfortunately, to her as a certain kind of sanitary item. Um, <laughs> I think you're came, talking about tampon gate for those who indeed, aren't familiar indeed, with, the, yes, with the story. Exactly. Um, you know, she was a laughing stock. She was, they were ridiculed. And she really was, you know, she had to sort of go underground. I mean, she has, you know, she said, I have to, I had to sort of hide for a whole year in my house and just sort of read books and tried to do oil paintings. I mean, it, it was, a, she really had to hide. And that, that dreadful uproar, you can imagine. I mean, we know how much it affected her children, how embarrassing it was, how terrible, but she kind of, all the way through it, she's never said a word. She has never complained. I mean, her her maxim is always, thou shalt not whine. She's never leaked. She simply toughed it out. And she did it without a kind of, um, you know, sort of a mea culpa or anything. She just simply laughed it off and just toughed it out. Britain, the British like that very much because that's stoic. That's kind of, you know, she she never complained. So she she toughed it out. And then there was a great campaign by Charles to sort of introduce her gradually to the public after the divorce from Diana. And then what happens? Diana dies, which, of course, oh, my God, you know, she's driven underground again, because at that point she's also public enemy number one as the sainted Diana being fated by the world. You know, Camilla was the sort of ugly, you know, uh, considered the ugly uh, sort of force that had driven, uh, you know, uh, Diana into such pain and, and sadness. You know, I mean, the love that Charles had for her. So she then has to hide again. But again, stoically just waits it out and goes forth. And gradually over the years, with a lot of PR care and strategy from Mark Bolland, who was their, uh, you know, very skillful, actually, uh, private secretary at the time. I mean, we, Mark Bolland never got any kind of a royal order as a thank you, which I think should be remedied because without Mark Bolland, I don't think that it would ever have been uh, rectified in the way that it was. But inch by inch, she was sort of brought out into the public light until finally, with the Queen having been so against it, and she was, because though she actually liked Camilla, who shared many of her interests, she really thought that Charles should move on, find somebody appropriate, stop with this Camilla mess. And Charles made it clear he wasn't going to. So finally, she lets him marry her. And from that moment, really, uh, that Camilla became the Duchess of Cambridge, she has not actually put, uh, Duchess of uh, Cornwall, I'm sorry, she really hasn't put a foot wrong. She's been supportive. She's been charming. She's been hardworking. She's taken on a lot of good, appropriate causes like you know, domestic violence, for which she's very authentically involved, has a book club always there with Charles now on the royal tours and he's she's made him now uh the best thing she's done is to make him an unapologetically happy man and I mean he's transformed since he's married Camilla in fact and that has her biggest service essentially to the monarchy so far so uh, and she's got almost no um profile in America do you think that they will be working on that once he ascends the throne well, you know, she'd like a profile in America. She would like to have one. But how do you get a profile today unless you're going to do a major sit down with a huge anchor, right? And there's no way that Camilla Parker Bowles will ever do that. I mean, think about her predecessors in that horrific uh, decision. You know, we've got Charles's disastrous interview with Dimbleby. We have Camilla's disastrous interview with Bashir. We have Andrew's, you know, when he strapped on a suicide vest and <laughs> talked to Emily Maitlis. And then we have, uh, uh, you know, Oprah's interview with, I mean, there's just no way in the world that Camilla is going to sit down for an Ask Me Anything interview in America. She'd rather be disliked. Well, and there's a wonderful anecdote in your book when she's 
being monstered at her father's home, I think, uh, by the British press. Who And I want to come on to their relationship with the royal family, too, because you make the very strong point in the book that the British royals don't really exist without the British press. And yet the two of them are in sort of, you know, a battle to the death almost. But there's a wonderful anecdote where Camilla's father comes out and says to the press, and they're all eager because they think he's going to give them a great quote. And the quote is, we keep our mouths shut. We keep our traps shut, I think he says. Um, right. So, right. so assuming that Charles, and to your point, is actually the right man for the time and that all the things that he believes in, like preserving the planet and the environment and eating organic, um, are now of the time. Um, and he, you know, he looks as if he's in fairly robust health. Um, assuming he does, get, he's, he does get pinker and pinker, doesn't he? He looks like a Rowlandson cartoon, like a sort of gouty squire. It's amazing. And by the time he ascends, he's going to be bright red, I think. It's true. <laughs> We've got some interesting photo rolls during this interview. And I looked at one of the pictures and Camilla looks fantastic. And Charles just looks beet red next to her. So he's either spending a lot of time outside or who knows what he's doing. Maybe he's using some sort of organic skincare. Um, but let, let's just think about... You know, the one thing that Charles and Camilla aren't, as, the, as you think of them taking over the throne, and you, and you look back 60 years to when Queen Elizabeth ascended the throne in her early 20s, super young, she brought a sort of sex appeal with it. Charles and Camilla bring a different kind of appeal. Um, but William and Kate still feel like they bring tremendous sex appeal to the role, unless, you know, William doesn't ascend the throne until he's 60. L let's talk a little bit about about Kate and William, because it does feel like the actual future of the monarchy is probably in their hands. Well, I think that the, frankly, the House of Windsor is extremely lucky to have William as the older son, really, and even more lucky that he decided to marry a daughter from, you know, of a middle-class family who turns out to be absolutely flawless in her learning of training for an adoption of the role of the future queen. Um, he is uh, composed, uh, you know, he's judicious, uh, careful, uh, uh, not as sexy, of course, as, as as the much more turbulent and charismatic Harry. But thank God Harry isn't going to be, isn't the first son, because, you know, it, it's a job that involves doing a lot of very dull things a lot of the time. And William has never shirked that, actually. He's, he's There's never been a period, even, even Charles had a very tough time accepting that his future destiny was to always know what he'd be doing exactly on the same day a year from now. He he really, he hated it. And he also, I guess, knew he had to wait a long time, which, which William doesn't. But William really has always embraced it. He was trained for it. Diana always encouraged him to know that this was his destiny. She never actually encouraged him to think of anything else. And so who he married then became the most important thing. And one of the things that I learned really in this book, essentially, is that who they marry <laughs> is the most important decision they ever make. Uh, you know, the Queen Mother, so important for the success of George VI, you know, who was a sort of stammering, shy, you know, awkward fellow who the Queen Mother sort of helped to push out and to nurture and to kind of help and support. Similarly, Philip, you know, huge help to the Queen, much, you know, iconoclastic, jollied her along, made her feel less timid, uh, was always there as a truth teller in her life, right to the bitter end, her strength and stay, you know, she called him. And then, you know, we've got um, Camilla, who Charles wasn't allowed to marry and flailed around until he did, and now he's very happy. And it's the same thing with William, you know, he's found 
amazingly, he found this girl, uh, as she then was, of course, Kate at, at, at St. Andrews University in Scotland, and he did make her wait 10 years. And the amazing thing is that she did wait 10 years. I mean, what what modern girl, uh, you know, as beautiful, educated, uh, in demand as Kate would actually spend 10 years molding her life around uh, marrying, you know, the future king? Very few women would have had, frankly, the patience for that uh, or the strategy for that. And she did. I was I wanted to ask you about that because there was a sense in the book that there was something premeditated about this. And I think perhaps for me, the most astonishing detail was that she'd actually got a place at Edinburgh University. She was going to go. And then at the last minute, I think after the news that Prince William was going to St. Andrews came out, she then changed from Edinburgh to St. Andrews, which in American terms is a little bit like um, you know, it being accepted at Harvard and then suddenly at the last minute saying you're going to go to Tufts. They're in the same area, but they're very different institutions. Um, was it as calculated as that? Well, that is the fascinating biography point that I spent a lot of time researching, actually, is like, were there any conceivable other reasons why Kate would have switched? I mean, Kate was not an unconventional young girl at all. I mean, she was very conservative even then. Um, she'd studied hard for St. Andrews. She got all the qualifications for it. Her sister was going to St. Andrews. Uh, uh, Edinburgh. Edinburgh, you know, she was going to study history of art for which Edinburgh is a preeminent, you know, university. What on earth could have made her make that decision? And I did come to the conclusion that it was this news that had broken. She then delayed her, her, her going for, you know, longer so that she could be there at the same time. So I do think that there was a certain amount of strategy. I say that love and strategy would be a great name for a Cambridge, you know, branded perfume. Um, but was, I mean, I think it was a real love match. I think that they did fall in love, but it's a different issue from falling in love, genuinely, as they did, for staying that obstacle course. I mean, she was on a snakes and ladders board for 10 years and could have stepped on a serpent at any time and gone straight to the bottom. It required absolute discretion. And like Camilla, Kate has never said or leaked an indiscreet word. It required a family that, that really erected a Praetorian guard around her. And another sort of classic thing I found really writing this is like who your family is, is the other most important thing about being a success. Camilla had the Shand family who, as you pointed out, you know, the major comes out and says, our family says, you know, keep your trap shut. That was the philosophy of the Shands, incredibly supportive loyal, warm, wrapped Camilla in the family blanket. Same thing with the Middletons. You know, they they forged this guard around her, particularly Carol Middleton, wonderful strategist, the Chris Jenner of Bucklebury, you know, were absolutely focused on her children and making them uh, successful. And, uh, you know, it worked. I mean, she was a kind of wonderful home county, county's tiger mom, and she's absolutely kept, uh, you know, her, her children have all done extraordinarily well. So you have that with, with Kate. So they were hugely important. And of course, the Middletons became very important to, to, to William. I mean, in some ways, you can imagine, you know, he hadn't got a mother. <clears throat> and his father has this incredibly sort of grand and sort of old fashioned lifestyle. You know, whenever he has a dinner party, you have sort of Catherine the Great China and, you know, 15 plates and knives and forks. <clears throat> Whereas the, the Middletons were just, you know, the equivalent of a pipe and slippers, you know, they, they liked watching TV, they played tennis in the garden. So in a sense, the Middletons became his adopted family too. That was a major seduction point for, for, for Kate. And as the years went by, 
obviously for William it felt I am so comfortable here with this family they are my family and you know then he uh, proposed and it was a massive thing really that this happened that uh, this young woman from this you know Berkshire middle class family is our next queen but what right, anyway. and, she, and she moves yeah she moves from being as the tabloids called a weighty Katie to yes. to getting what what she wanted um I mean, it's hard. It's hard not to come out of the out of reading the book with enormous amount of respect for Kate because she's been sort of taunted by the tabloids and goaded by them, um, and you feel like actually, if the future of the monarchy is in her hands, it's going to be fine because she seems intelligent. She's well educated. She's organised. She's got enormous respect for the duty of the job, as you pointed out. Uh, and William does too, clearly. And obviously, he's been a rescue helicopter pilot for for many years. So he's actually done something too. Um, so let's talk about then the younger brother. And um, I, I want to talk about Meghan and Kate. I want to talk about Meghan and Harry. I want to talk about William and Harry. I'm not quite sure where to start. But but let's talk a little bit about the boys' relationship, um, William and Harry's relationship, because it always seemed that it was very close. And obviously, it's become less close as Harry has moved to the west coast of America. They see each other much less, and their roads seem to have diverged. Well, they were very close as children. They were the only, I mean, it was William who had to come into Harry's room with his father and break it to, to poor young Harry at the age of 12 that their mother had died in that play, uh, train uh, car crash in Paris. He always was the protective arm around Harry. Uh, enormously close, best friends, the only people who aren't two people on the planet who knew what it was like, not just to go through Diana's death, but all the horrific scandals and, you know, an endless, you know, tabloid hysteria that followed it. So they were really close, united in this kind of bubble together. Uh, at the same time, what I really learned, which was interesting, was how important Harry was to William. It wasn't just that William protected Harry. Harry also was very important to William as a sort of the iconoclast for William. You know, he was the one person who could josh with his brother and make sort of bring him down to earth as only a kid uh, sibling can. Uh, who, because, you know, William is going to be king. And so whatever they say about being normal and how everything's so wonderfully, you know, ordinary and there's really no difference, etc. There is a difference. You know, William is going to be king. And there is no one in his circle who's not deeply, deeply aware of that. So Harry was the one person who was on his level and could just say, come off it, you know, to William. And I'm told that now that he misses that, you know, tremendously because they really were close for a very, very long time. You might think, and I, I do really, is that it was sort of inevitable that their paths would somewhat diverge because, you know, when Harry came out of the army where he was for 10 years, an enormously uh, impressive uh, military career, actually, and, 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 and he was to the manner born. I mean, so being a soldier was really what his vocation. But he had to leave after 10 years because essentially to move up in the army these days, you have to have much more sort of academic prowess than Harry ever had. You can't be sort of, you know, in the front lines of, of you know, the military forever. <laughs> So there was no way that he could stay. And it was thought, well, there's plenty for Harry to do. You know, he's he's going to be the spare wheel, essentially. He does all the kind of uh, foreign representing of the Queen. The so sovereign needs to be reported. She's uh, supported. She's getting older. It seemed as if Harry could have a, a big role. But Harry didn't like that role and felt marginalised. He felt that, you know, he, he'd always been raised with William as 
equals essentially by Diana. And the difference is, is you know, Har Andrew and Charles had about a 10 year age gap between them. So they, you know, Andrew never really saw himself as sort of Charles's peer in that sense. You know, he was always the kid brother. He was, you know, Charles was way ahead. But William and Harry were very close, only two years uh, between them. So increasingly, Harry felt, um, you know, a kind of beginnings of a resentment that somehow he was being marginalized, that he had these great uh, communications gifts, which he does, and somehow wasn't being deployed properly uh, in that role. Uh, and of course, when when William married Kate, as inevitably happens, you know, the brother feels a bit dislodged, right? He felt a bit like Bridget Jones, like, <laughs> you know, hanging around as the third, uh, as the spare wheel. Uh, and it became tricky, even though he was very fond of Kate. And he was desperate to get married, desperate. And he felt bitter because unlike William, who'd found his love, you know, in the in the sort of bubble of St. Andrew's University, unfortunately, Harry didn't. Uh, he was in the army. It was much harder for him. And so his first two girlfriends were driven away by the press, really. The two serious girlfriends, Chelsea Davy and uh, Cressida Bonus, beautiful, fabulous young women, both of them, who Harry was mad about. I mean, he could have easily married either of them and was thought that he might. Um, but they were always just in the end, like driven away by the horror of being stalked and hacked and, you know, eavesdropped and, and had, it's horrible being, you know, the involved with a member of the royal family. And he was bitter about that. So that sort of increased his resentment. He felt he was getting all the bad things about being royal without the upside that, that William got. And there was quite a lot of rivalry between them about the kind of portfolio that William was getting and the one that, that Harry thought he was. I mean, that was an interesting thing that I discovered, that the fact that there were Olympic rows uh, about sort of what Harry considered, you know, his desire to represent issues like uh, Africa and, you know, the environment. But those were William's interests, too. So there was a lot of competition when that happened. And I think that William was really quite envious of the success of Invictus Games, the uh, initiative that Harry launched very, very successfully to um, create a kind of special Olympics for vets, which has just happened. All of these things were kind of bubbling and, you know, and kind of pushing them apart. And then, of course, Harry meets Meghan and that, you know, he feels he's found his soulmate. And, you know, he's transfixed, essentially. And um, William wanted him to slow down. And that was very, very aggravating to, to to Harry. He thought he was being patronized. He said, you know, like he resented William saying, slow down. And I think that yes. in fairness, William was just saying, you know, consider how tough this is going to be for her. You know, he made Kate wait 10 years <laughs> before. Well, there's, a wonderful, there's a wonderful anecdote in the book where Harry decides to take Meghan to Botswana on, I think, their third date. And William Riley points out when Harry says she's the one, she's the one, he, he points out that actually this is the fourth person you've taken to Botswana. So, um, but, but, but let's talk also a little bit about, uh, I mean, there's been a lot of discussion, uh, and you talk about it in the book, about whether or not Meghan actually knew who Harry was, because she claims she never Googled him. And yet that seems highly unlikely because they were set up on a blind date. Who doesn't Google their boyfriend? I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, she, it was very, to me, mysterious when she said to, to, to Oprah, um, I didn't do any research because in my research, talking to all the people she, you know, a lot of the people she worked with, you know, in, in her actress life, she was incredibly well prepared as an actress. You know, she was one of these actresses who wants always looking for notes from the director and information and boning up and trying to, you know, she was playing a young a young lawyer, and and so she wanted to know everything about what that young lawyer would confront. And, see. and yet, 
the biggest role of her life, which was to marry um, the grandson of the queen, she says she did no research for. And I think that's unfortunate if she didn't, because she might have known more about what she was getting into. I mean, in fairness, I'm sure that Harry minimised the financial predicament they were going to find themselves in. I mean, hardly, you know, it's unlikely that a man is going to say to her, look, hey, you know, you're not going to have half the things you think you're going to get as a sort of fairy story princess. I mean, he'd already had two other uh, very close girlfriends sort of driven away. He really wanted to nail Kate and uh, Meghan down. He he wanted to be married at that moment and he was in love with Meghan and he would have been devastated if that too had, had fallen apart. But the fact is what, what Meghan really discovered is, um, I mean, she was always, as an actress, number six on the call sheet. That means you're the number six person in terms of being important on the show. Essentially, in Prince Harry, she also married number six on the call sheet because he was actually sixth in line at that by that time um, to the British throne, you know, because there was Charles, there was William, and there were William's three children and then Harry. So in terms of the hierarchy of the palace, in terms of the monarchy, Harry was a wonderful addition to the sort of royal lineup. But he really wasn't going to get uh, the kind of status, the kind of um, pulling power in terms of assignments, the kind of um, uh, you know dwelling, all the things that you get, of course, when you're the first in line. And so that was for her very galling. I mean, she was essentially marrying for the first time. I mean, this woman who had was 36 and had been earning her living very successfully from the age of 21 was suddenly completely dependent on her husband for money. And um, he was at the same time completely dependent on the bank of dad, which was Charles. And at the same time, also had to kind of ask Granny, the queen, you know, for, uh, you know, one of the houses on the royal estates to live. That's the kind of infantilizing that I'm sure, well, I know, was absolutely maddening to Meghan. I mean, she did not like it. And yet it gave her a very specific role and a pulpit from which to have an authority talking about things, which perhaps she's now struggling to find. And it's sort of interesting watching her now, having given up with Harry, obviously, the royal moniker, to just sort of be in a, a pile of other celebrities, you know, struggling for, for relevance, or at least that's what it feels like from the outside. And also... I mean, on the one hand, and I want to talk about the role of the British press here, um, because obviously Meghan and Harry felt particularly traumatised by them. But it's one thing to be traumatised by the British press. It's another to, sit, to say you want privacy and that you're extremely anxious about security and you've got to pay for your own security. And then to sit down for a global interview with Oprah Winfrey. So what are the... Um, contradictions going on with Meghan and Harry, uh, you know, why should we take them seriously? Well, I mean, I, I think that I think they both completely underestimated uh, what it was going to be like to be without the, the you know, the, the, the palace platform. Um, however much they hated, and they really did, I think, at that point, the constraints and the sort of uh, pettiness, essentially, they conceived of the palace uh, you know, and the advisors. Try doing it without the palace and the advisors, right? Because what the palace does, of course, it's an amazing convening, uh, has amazing convening power. There's no one who wants to take a phone call if they say Buckingham Palace on the phone, Kensington Palace on the phone. So there's a huge convening power. Every major invitation in the world comes through that conduit. And the private secretaries could just sift and say, what about you appear at this? Well, why don't you do this appearance? So 
all of that's now gone and essentially they have to just hire prs to do that for him and their judgment is not necessarily the best judgment that they should be listening to because of course you know they're trying to leverage whatever they say the royal brand and there's no pr that really knows how to do that better than buckingham or kensington palace right so they're suddenly without this this leverage. I think that, that Harry is in a much better spot because he brilliantly actually started this Invictus Games. And that's what his brand should be. He should just forget everything but the Invictus Games and just make that his brand. It's authentic. He really was, uh, you know, extremely impressive as a soldier. Uh, vets are, you know, in his bloodstream in terms of uh, authentic caring about them. And it's a wonderfully connective cause, frankly, to be aligned to and has really endless scope in multiple countries. Meghan doesn't really have a brand, is the truth. And she sort of, you feel that she is sort of grasping somewhat at, uh, you know, whatever is the kind of um, Twitter caring of the moment. You know, it's, it's, it's you know, vaccinations, it's Ukraine, it's women's rights, it's, hey, my 40th birthday, let's have a mentoring scheme. Nothing is really going anywhere for Meghan. And then there is the question of the whole entertainment deals that they did. And I think that more savvy advisors, if they had thought about it, could tell them the whole problem with entertainment deals is that you have to deliver hits. <laughs> they're great. Anyone can, if they're lucky, can sign a major entertainment deal. But where's the product? I mean, you know, they've signed with Netflix. What have we seen? Um, nothing really, except this uh, upcoming documentary with Invictus, which I think will be great. And I think it's a good, good idea, actually. But, you know, creating entertainment that works is very hard to do. Uh, their Spotify uh, podcast kind of seems to have gone nowhere now. She's, you know, Megan is now doing a new one about, you know, archetypes or something. And, you know, you get a sense that there's a certain amount of flailing there. And, you know, Netflix is not doing so well. Are they going to renew that contract? So they're now having to scramble for the deals uh, in the way that anybody is, you know, who's a celebrity in the kind of platformless universe has to do. And I think it's a very hard task to keep that aloft. If you're royal, there's no timestamp on it. You know, you can be as boring as you want for years and years and still you're going to have big things coming your way. Yeah, so you, you really feel in the book that Megan is, is struggling for relevance. And you also feel that both of them were fantastically suspicious of the advisors in the palace. Um, how treacherous was that um, palace hierarchy to negotiate for, for both Harry and Meghan? And uh, I mean, at one point you talk about the Queen giving Meghan her most trusted advisor, Susan Hussey, but Susan Hussey was 80. So the idea that somehow there would be um, a, a real sort of relationship that felt modern is, is hard to imagine. So was, I guess what I'm asking is, was Meghan set up for success? Um, did she become too paranoid? Um, were the staff treacherous or did they just choose to ignore actually pretty good advisors? All at once, really. Uh, I mean, actually, I think that the Queen and the Palace set the Sussex up for a lot of success. I mean, the Queen gave her one of her most treasured patronages, which was a uh, patron of the National Theatre. What a fabulous thing for a former actress. I mean, a marvellous, uh, prestigious patronage. She also made her vice chairman of the uh, Commonwealth Foundation, which, given that uh, Meghan had said, 
that she had a huge desire to do sort of global humanitarian work. There's no better platform, essentially, uh, to be able to talk about women's education, to talk about, uh, you know, uh, uh, the question of minorities. This was a fantastic uh, platform, really, that needed modernizing and dusting off and, and repositioning particularly in the kind of atmosphere right now, the social atmosphere of the moment with Black Lives Matters and all of these things that we've seen impacting on the Cambridge tour. But there was nonetheless a big role there, uh, a long-standing role with a lot of longevity for for the Sussexes. And the Queen's view, uh, you know, I'm told is like, you know, Prince Philip came into the royal family and he also actually scrambled. I mean, he felt completely that he had no role, no platform of his own. And over years, he carved one out for himself and made himself extraordinarily important, uh, you know, as, as an influencer, as a as a uh, fundraiser, as a, uh, uh, you know, a sort of icon of, 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 of national virtue, in a sense. I mean, of, of uh, in terms of his um, causes, it may not personally mean, but certainly his causes. So I, there was bafflement, actually, in the palace that the um, uh, that they seem not to appreciate what these things could become. Were the palace advisors treacherous? I think that the palace is a snake pit. I think it always has been. I mean, I think it's like any crusty institution, whether it's the BBC or the New York Times or <laughs> Buckingham Palace. It's a crusty, dusty place, which has got quite a lot of viperish people in it. But, you know, frankly, the communications team at Buckingham Palace, uh, Kensington Palace, uh, and, and indeed for the Sussex's own team, who they hired after all, um, were pretty impressive communications people and very smart. Uh, and actually, I think that they were able to hire anybody they wanted, essentially, to be their advisors. But they also had to listen to them. And I think that one of the problems was that they didn't really want to hear. They, they'd hear the advice and they didn't want the advice. I mean, they wanted to be able to have a commercial arm to their activities. That was the, that was the issue. That was the stumbling block. They saw, I mean, Meghan certainly saw the deals that were there to be made that they had to leave on the table because they were royals. They wanted to have the Commonwealth patronage, Harry's military patronages, uh, HRH, all of the things that, that made them royal. But they also wanted to go off and make commercial deals to get the kind of financial, you know, lucrative deals that they wanted, it seems, at this point because they wanted to be able to use that leverage to have that. And, you know, it was as if Meghan just could not sort of resist uh, everything that was offered on the celebrity buffet. <laughs> you know, she she wanted so, all of it. So it was greed that drove her out? I don't, I don't see it so much as greed. I don't see it so much as greed as, you know, a hunger to avail herself of the kind of wonderful global leverage that, major celebrities have <clears throat> to be able to do their cause work, to be able to appear in the way they want, to be able to be free to say what they want, to be able to live in glorious houses without the uh, strings attached. I don't think it was simple greed. No, I don't. I think it was really, she's looking at someone like Michelle Obama and thinking, wow, she has it all. You know, she's she's got the stature and she has, you know, the ability to live in amazing houses, go on amazing holidays, be the big voice for humanitarian anything she wants but also has freedom and you know that's what Meghan wanted as well and I think that Harry came to want that I don't think that he did conceive that because Harry wasn't really 
wired enough into the sort of uh, you know uh, the celebrity entertainment complex like like Megan was. You know, I think Meg. I think that it is true though that um, Megan has been unfairly. Uh, and I, you know, I say this in the book. I actually think that 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 it was unfair in a sense to call it Megxit because I really think Harry wanted out himself. And, um, he, you know, one of the advisors did say to me, and I was kind of shocked by this, very close in the circle, said to me, you know, we always knew that Harry was going to go at some point. He, he was really unhappy. The Queen knew that at some point it was highly likely that Harry would want out, but they didn't know it would be so fast and they didn't see it happening in the way that it did. And I think it's also then fair to say that Meghan gave Harry the tools to leave, you know, I mean, because she was wired in, she understood the world of agents and deals. And I mean, this wasn't Harry's world, but suddenly he had in Meghan a very worldly strategist who he decided to trust above all the other advisors. And I don't think that was such a good, smart move. I think that, yes, I get that he wanted, you know, this more exciting and imaginative use of his of his gifts. But I think there was a lot that could have been achieved inside the royal family. And that, by the way, is what his mother did. He's always saying, you know, my mother would be you know, happy, etc. I don't know that Diana would. Diana always saw the power of changing within the structure of monarchy. She, she didn't want to be out of the monarchy. She wanted to hang on to her HRH, which was confiscated. She stayed living in Kensington Palace. Nothing would have prized her out of there. She saw that the royal uh, imprimatur was always going to be the best, you know, leverage, the best convening power, you know, to promote the causes that she cared about. So I don't know that she would have ever really advocated, you know, going off to live in Montecito without any of the patronages and any of the uh, platform of the powers. So do you think that, um, well, where is the relationship between William and Kate and Meghan and Harry now? Are they all are they all talking? What what happens when Charles ascends the throne? Do they all sit in a in a row, you know, together pretending they all get on fine? Where is that relationship now? Well, the relationship now is pretty much non-existence. There's a lot of uh, it's got a lot of of healing to do before there's any any relationship now. Uh, I think it's even possible it could have been healed after the Oprah interview, although it was a very explosive and hurtful uh, interview as far as they were concerned. But Harry's announcement that he's also going to do a kiss, you know, a tell-all memoir coming out this September was just a, a huge issue for the whole family. It's like they have it now hanging over them like the sword of Damocles that come the fall, they're going to get another boatload, you know, of flack from inside their own family, just at a point when the monarchy's very fragile with the queen, you know, on a glide path to, to the end of her life. So there's a lot of anger about that. Inside. And what, what, what do we think is going to be in the memoir? Because it's hard to think of what could be more explosive than accusations that the royal family are racist, uh, which obviously oh, they made during no the Oprah interview. Well, no names were named on that interview. Maybe he will name names. Um, I'm told it's going to be very harsh. Do you know um, who, was, who was he talking about at that moment? Uh, we don't know. We don't know. And uh, maybe he'll tell us. But I am told it's going to be a harsh book because he's anxious to quote, you know, tell his truth. And that truth is going to be uh, to earn, earn the 20 million dollars advance he's got for three books, too, hasn't he? Isn't he? I would think. <laughs> I mean, I, is. I personally, I think the royal family should write a huge check and say, look, Harry, <laughs> here's a check for your security. Um, maybe you could just sort of postpone it. 
indefinitely. Well, maybe he could open. Maybe he could open a West Coast branch of the royal family for people to to drop in um, uh, and, and make a connections. Um, yeah. so, so look, it would be it would be remiss not to discuss Prince Andrew, um, as we're just coming to the end of of this interview. <sighs> How much damage has he done to the royal family? I think he's done a lot. You know, he really has tarnished the crown, I think, enormously by his behaviour. And it's tragic, really, that in the Queen's Jubilee year, she had to deal with this. You know, I mean, here's this woman who is trying, you know, to bring herself to the point of, of health and energy where she can have her last kind of major uh, valedictory jubilee with the British nation. And then along comes Andrew with his endless appalling behavior, which has ended in this disgraceful kind of moral rout, um, where she's actually been forced to kind of cancel her own son, strip him of his military uh, patronages. I mean, it's very, very painful for her personally. Um, and I think, it, you know, it has been a tarnishing factor. What they're going to do with Andrew, I don't know, because, you know, he's a six, healthy 61-year-old man who happens to live, you know, a stone's throw from Windsor Castle um, with great access to the Queen at all times, which is making the rest of the family extremely nervous. It's like having, you know, your worst member of the family really close to the major matriarch, and everyone is thinking, you know, what on earth is he going to winkle out of her now? Uh, so he's, you know, I mean, in the past you know, generations, years, decades, they would have, you know, banished him to some castle on the borders of, you know, Wales or something and pulled up the drawbridge. But they can't do that in the modern era. So that's a problem. And I think it's going to actually go on being a bit of a problem, frankly. Well, and again, someone that didn't listen to his advisor when they said, please don't do this interview. No, I mean, the incredible thing was that he absolutely didn't, you know, that he sat down, that he elected voluntarily to sit down with probably you know Britain's most accomplished prosecutorial journalist it's like going on 60 minutes and just saying hey ask me anything you like for an hour it went on and on and on people were just gobsmacked and it, it took place in Buckingham Palace for goodness sake um of all places and you know apparently he basically bypassed the private secretaries and who would never have let him do it and went straight to mummy and said, you know, it's only going to be all about my philanthropies. And the Queen was actually watching that interview with like supper on a tray, you know, when, <laughs> and she and, and you know, she thinks she's going to be hearing about his his philanthropies. And all of a sudden there is this unbearable one hour sort of uh, humiliation. Um, and everyone in the family was just completely stunned. I mean, you know, Charles was in New Zealand at the time. Charles has the habit of always trying, being on a foreign tour, thinking he's going to get press for talking about, you know, global warming at a time when his family does something new, horrific. <laughs> and he's, and then all that happens is he's walking around Bahrain or, you know, Auckland saying no comment, no comment, no comment. So, you know, it, it, it was a disaster. And um, I'm glad that, that, you know, they seem to have, you know, they settled they 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 tried to kind of clean it up uh, for in time for the jubilee, but it's it's been horrific. So I know when you were writing the book, you had your own personal sort of tragedy, and that Harry Evans, your long-term husband, died, and Prince Philip also died, actually, almost within the same time frame. Actually, did it feel very different writing this book 
without him because obviously he was just a legendary editor and I know he'd been very involved in your previous books. Well, it, it did rather. I mean, you know, I mean, Harry was my strength and stay, you know, as Philip was to Elizabeth. And uh, I've never, I mean, I knew it was going to be a very difficult loss for me to bear after, you know, nearly 40 years together. Uh, and it, it has been a very difficult loss to bear. And of course, I missed him in every way. But, you know, he was my greatest editor, too. You know, there was nobody like Harry for uh, uh, giving your pages to at night, which I would do every e every evening. And he would disappear into his study and 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 sort of next thing is an hour later, he'd put it into his extraordinary Cuisinart and he'd come back and he'd say, I just made a few changes. I look at it and think, why is it reading so well? I didn't even know what he'd done. Uh, so, yes, I missed him all the way through hugely but in some ways I suppose having the book to sort of drive me on was better than you know crawling up in the fetal position in you know in my bed uh, <laughs> during the lockdown and just sort of mourning so it, it kept me going I suppose to have the book. Well the book is extraordinary I couldn't put it down I'm thrilled for you that it's doing as well as it is it came roaring in at the top of the bestseller list um, huge congratulations and many Thank thanks you. for your time this morning. Thank you so much and thanks Washington Post Live for this wonderful talk with Joanna. <laughs> Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.